0: Have you ever heard of Disability Pride Month? If you haven't, you're not alone. I myself only just learned about Disability Pride Month, which occurs every July since 1990. That date commemorates the historic Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, landmark legislation that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities. While Disability Pride Month is a lesser known commemorative month in modern America, We thought it was important and right to recognize, honor, and celebrate our listeners and our past guests who have disabilities, for all their incredible gifts and contributions to society, and to do our small part to amplify the voices of those with disabilities in our modern world. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the news stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursula. This July, we're listening back to a recent interview with a guest whose life and life's work have been shaped by disability. Brooke Ellison is an associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University in New York. After a car accident... At age 11, Brooke was left paralyzed from the neck down and ventilator dependent. She went on to graduate magna cum laude from Harvard University with a degree in cognitive neuroscience and received her master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, then her PhD in sociology from Stony Brook University. Today, Brooke is a multi published author, a policy and ethics expert in stem cell research, and has served on the Empire State Stem Cell Board which is designated New York State's stem cell policy. She's also on the board of directors of the New York Civil Liberties Union and the Suffolk County Human Rights Commission. In this 2023 interview, Brooke discussed why she felt compelled to tell her story all over again in a second memoir called Look Both Ways. Now with nearly 20 more years of hard-earned experience in living with a disability, championing disability rights, and teaching future healthcare professionals about the complexities of medical ethics, Brooke's new book looks at her own life and the lives of those with disabilities in a new light through the lens of sociology, including some very well-deserved critiques of a society that isn't constructed to include those with disabilities by design. In this excerpt, I ask Brooke about the challenges of navigating feelings of othering that she says she experiences when others describe her as inspirational to her face, even from well-intentioned and well-meaning people. Brooke describes how this backhanded compliment, and others like it, such as, I could never do what you do, or I don't know how I would live like you live, distance those with disabilities from those without, and what the new story could become instead. Here's Brooke.
1: That is one of the, uh, the the biggest struggles that I have encountered, um, you know, in my life lived with, with disability. Right, kind of that juxtaposition or that dichotomous existence of being revered or being heralded. You know, as you as you mentioned. Um, uh, and at the same time, kind of dismissed, right? It's kind of how could, how could somebody play both roles? And you know, that's why I incorporated as much, uh, sociology as I did in, the, in the book, right? The kind of structural functionalist role that, that people in general play in society, right? The people's, um, identities and. Positions in the world serve roles in in how other people uh, live their lives and how they make meaning of their their own existence. And people with disabilities are are primary among them where they are um, viewed as the people who do things that maybe other people don't feel like they would have the capacity to do or their lives... Put um, other people's lives in perspective in terms of hardship, right? Look, like I hear this all the time. People will say to me, I don't know how, I, I don't know what I would do if my life was like yours, right? And almost this um, fe- feigned praise, but at the same time, a bit of condescension that I think comes out of a, a out of a, um, A statement like that. And I understand the motivation. I think that that people genuinely are well intended in saying those kinds of things. You're offering me uh, praise, at least in some kind of a bit of a backhanded way, like your life is is so awful. How could you? you I think it's pretty great that you're doing what you're doing, right? So it's kind of this weird backhanded way. Um, But I, I, I think that that forces us to. Question how we place value on people's lives and what we ultimately do with that value, right? Is it enough to just say to somebody that your life is inspiring or that I recognize how difficult your life is? And then not take the additional step and say, well, what could I do to actually make your life easier, right? Rather than just leave it at, you know, I know that your life is difficult um, and then not do something about it. And I think that that um, unwillingness to take that additional step kind of um, removes society or removes individuals from their their position to actually make a difference in people's lives in meaningful ways, right? It kind of um, allows... Society in general to just say, okay, I've done enough by saying that you're an inspiration. I don't, I don't have to. You know, I'm going to abdicate my, um, my ability to do something more than that. And I think w- when I talk to people with disabilities, I talk to people in general, and I talk about like what would make somebody. Um, be afraid of living with a disability they talk about things like you're not being able to do the things I've always done in the, in the past, so you're not being able to have a relationship not being able to um, you know, to take part in the activities I take part in, all of these things are socially constructed inabilities, right? And I think that we live in a world where we have just taken that as given, we believe that these are just realities rather than things that we can actually change if we had the um, you know, the, the, lead yourselves to have the wherewithal and the um the desire to change. Um, so I, that, that is where I think the kind of the crux of the issue is that people saying, "Oh, you you are inspiration," um, kind of denies them the opportunity to say. Let me understand the ways in which your life is difficult and how could I make a difference in that? How could I advocate for things that could be beneficial to you to make your your life less difficult? You know, how could I be a part of a conversation about disability inclusion or offering opportunities for people who are denied opportunities or allowing them the ability to live Um at home in the community, as opposed to you know, having the fear of living in a medical institution. Like, these are the realities of people's lives that make it difficult, right? Not necessarily just the physicality of disability, but all these other socio cultural constructs or, or challenges in people's lives. Like, that's really where the work is. That's where the hard work is. And I think people deny themselves the opportunity to really make a difference in somebody's life by saying, it's enough to just say somebody's an, an inspiration. And like, there's this um, movement within the disability community where people call say that uh, being called an inspiration is kind of inspiration porn, right? Just kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, minimizing the, uh, the actual lives of people with disabilities, were right? kind of uh, being patronizing and not fully understanding the extent of their lives. It's not It's not uh, inspiration to just kind of try to go food shopping, right? That's not what's inspiring to people, right? That shouldn't be inspiring to people. But at the same time, I'm a firm believer that what is inspiring to people is, you know, is the uh, ability of people with disabilities, you know, they, what they have to incorporate into their lives to move forward in a world that's not built for them, that's just kind of fundamentally not designed for them. Like that is and ought to be inspiring to people, right? That people with disabilities have this um, ongoing resilience to battle a set of uh, social circumstances that make their lives more difficult. But in that very same acknowledgement, it ought to be the acknowledgement that we as a society can do better. And I think that's where the gap lies that everybody has a role to play in how disability is ultimately understood and how um, there's a socio cultural component to disability, right? It's not just the physicality of disability, it's all the additional social. Issues that society can actually take an active part in trying to reduce or trying to make better, and that's where we fall short.
0: I really appreciate the idea of. Uh, I really appreciate the idea of um, the feigned praise and condescension, as you described it, Brooke. That this, this amalgamation—I uh, almost kind of heard it in, in terms of that. I that I know um, a lot of friends working in anti-racism will use um, like microaggressions in that there's like coded intention to calling somebody inspiring, which is externally complimentary. I, when I, when I heard you say it, I kind of like imagined as if I was hearing it from a vantage point, of course, that I, that I do not know personally myself and, and, and cannot know. I almost heard it as like a distancing. Uh, I almost heard it like the, it was a compliment, but it was coded distancing kind of like either asserting or affirming, the like a mental or emotional distance from somebody else's experience in a way that I can only imagine is further isolating for someone when grocery shopping is described as inspiring when uh, and when the steps uh, or the intentionality is not taken by by others to take on as you called it the the willingness to take an additional step to either make someone's life better or to to inquire right to engage in conversation to be curious about how to. Um, be a part of enriching or supporting or making more equitable someone's life who is, who is experiencing a disability in a society and in a culture that is either averse or uncomfortable or uh, it, at the very least very inaccessible, make, has made disability very inaccessible, um, or I should say has made accessing life very difficult for those with disabilities. And I do want to ask you about that a little bit, Brooke, before we talk about that willingness to take additional steps after all, this is the show called The New Story Is. Um, I've heard you say before in other interviews that you feel like a lot of people's discomfort, so I should say um, people, uh, non-disabled people, that their discomfort interacting with people with disabilities seems to be around their own projections and fears and discomfort around their vulnerabilities or their human frailties, as if they're Projecting their own discomfort, maybe about their own mortality, right? Just the eventuality of our all facing our own deaths as human beings, but also frailty and and um, vulnerability that that is, I would personally editorialize and say, just a part of the human experience, right? That we'd rather not face and rather rather avoid. I wonder if you've ever given any thought to that notion. Through the lens of our society and our culture's general discomfort with vulnerability, period, or our repulsion to things like frailty or vulnerability, and for that matter, our, our you know, non-relationship to death and mortality. I wonder if you've given that any thought from a, from a philosophical lens.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. No, very much so, Dave. And I appreciate that question too. Yeah. So I think um, within the United States, we have a a society that's built on self-reliance, right? And that stands uh, in diametric opposition to how many people with disabilities have to live their lives, right? Um, And that was an understanding that was difficult for me to come to terms with that my life was going to be very much the opposite of that right the, wherever i uh ultimately ended up was completely the result of my dependence on other people right so not at all the self-reliance um perspective or orientation on things and i think that is how many people with disabilities live their lives right in opposition to um you know the go to or pulling myself out from my bootstraps kind of perspective on life but one on like we need to we need to have a mutual understanding of our mutual necessity to rely on, or on one another right like that is how people with disabilities live their lives every single day um so where I, I ultimately ended up and where I am in the world right now is, is a function of understanding that and not feeling embarrassed or ashamed about that, but actually quite proud of that. And I think that many people, um, unless they are forced to admit that, don't want to admit that. They don't want to understand their lives in terms of, of reliance on other people or dependence on other people, right? They want to say, okay, well, where I am right now is because of my own hard work and who I am and my own sense of strength. Um So I think it's, it's, I think it's both of those things, right? Our, our, um, Unwillingness to be vulnerable, or to understand our lives in terms of vulnerability, but also understanding our lives in terms of how we're going to need to live it in communion with other people. Um, that has been that was a struggle for me uh, for many years after my accident. That I was I needed, I needed to, to shake off the um, the understanding that I was a weaker person because I needed help to get through the day. And I think if we, as a society, were warm more welcoming of that understanding, we would be less afraid of aging, right? And the kinds of changes that our lives are going to invariably um, have to undergo as we get older and the kinds of levels of dependence we're going to need to um, integrate into them as we we get older and and how we accept care and how we offer care, right? We live in a society in the United States where finding caregivers is very, very difficult because, you know, for that very same reason, it's hard to be the person who is offering other people care and compassion and, and giving them the opportunities to make the most of their lives because we're trying to do that for our own lives, right? It's hard, it's hard to make that, that mental shift that we can do that for somebody else and not feel like less of a person as a result. So, um, and to be on the receiving end as well, right? That we can uh, understand our lives in terms of those who have helped us get us to where we ultimately end up being. And uh, that was an important lesson for me. And one of the, I think, central messages of look both ways is you know, understanding that and, and being very kind of deliberate and intentional in how I recognize the role that other people have played in my life and getting me to, uh, you know, through each day.
0: Yeah, it creates such an existential dilemma in living in a society in which we are so entrained and uh, enculturated to believe that self-reliance, like you mentioned, like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the myth of the, the self-made person, it's often called the self-made man, right? Um, yeah, and and in living with that uh, conditioning, almost like a propagandistic if that's a word conditioning that this is the ideal and either, I mean, I I believe we all have to learn eventually that interdependence is a necessity in life that independence actually isn't it's, but, but there's so many flavors to our life, both mythologically, um, certain social values and expectations that are coded into our, our politics, um, and, and a lot of toxic stories like toxic masculinity, um, and it is really quite jarring to have these stories and, and stories that are embedded in things like, I guess you could take it in a way in different superhero stories. I think they're getting more nuanced these days where we, we understand that superheroes aren't superheroic, that, they, that they're expressing certain um values and struggles that of what it means to be human, which I think of only because we were talking about Christopher Reeve earlier. But the the point of interdependence and receiving care and giving care and recognizing our fundamental dependency on one another. I kind of want to take that idea, Brooke, if we can, and transition towards um, what I found to be really interesting in reading Look Both Ways. You mentioned, uh, and we mentioned, that you're an associate professor of health advocacy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University, where you also earned your PhD in in Long Island and New York. Uh, And I understand, based on your book, that your office today is in the same building where you were rushed at age 11 after your accident. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And in that um, kind of irony, there's this kind of very strange existential question. You know, it's so so strange knowing that you just a number of years before um, now – I was fighting for my life and now doing something that was, that was never expected of me at all. Uh, Yeah. In the same building. Exactly. So it's very strange.
0: Yeah. And, and I know that there were people who actually rendered your emergent care and taking care of you uh, at a time that was, I know that the, you know, everything was saying that was very bleak, your odds of survival. And uh, I know that there were people who were taking care of you who, um, were working in the building, when you came to work in the building and when you were earning your PhD. So there was, there, there was I just get this visual and this impression of like that feeling of interdependence, the, the dependency that you had as somebody who was being rendered medical care, emergency medical care in a place that you would return to where you are now passing on knowledge, wisdom, and experience to others. Um, and some of those same people who, who uh, helped you are still in the building too. Um, it's I don't know. It speaks to me of this this fundamental interdependence of what we're seeing, and it's something that maybe perhaps because we are not all exposed to it or reminded of the interdependence that we all have upon one another. But this seems like quite an example um, for you of uh, living this and being reminded of it perhaps every day. What is the experience like for you? You know, now these years later, um, as a health advocacy and medical ethics professor in what you're passing on, I suppose, to, to your students. And, um, what is that experience like for you?
1: You know, the um, circular nature of my existence is perhaps one of the most obvious uh, examples of our mutual dependence, right? And one of the most interesting parts of my life, yeah, I never would have imagined, and certainly you know, my physicians who were treating me at the time of my accident, You know, th- th- whether or not I was even going to make it from one day to the next was highly in question, uh, let alone becoming a professor and teaching the very experiences that I was undergoing at the time to future healthcare professionals, like this, is all just sometimes it's it's gobsmacking to me, you know, that this is actually how my life has evolved and turned out. Um, so yes, so you know, I, 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 yes, I write about in my book. You know, I, I traverse the halls of a uh, health sciences center and a and a hospital that you know in which I was a patient, have been a patient, you know many times since then Um, and the questions that I talk about as a professor of of medical ethics or health care ethics or bioethics depending on whatever the nature of the the conversation is um, are the very same experiences and questions that my family and I were asking ourselves at the time of my accident you know what does it mean to live on medical technology how do we uh, decide when um, the time is no longer um, uh, would somebody's life you know, ought not to uh, continue to have medical intervention conducted on it you know, how do, how do you um assess that or make that judgment you know when there's so much going on so little that's known from one day to the next um how do you ascribe life or worth to the life of somebody whose who's life is totally different than it had been right like all of these questions are fundamental questions to medical ethics and often they're debated by or answered by people who don't who actually haven't had those lived experiences and i think that my um perspective on these kinds of questions is a very valuable one um i think it it offers a a flavor or a tone that possibly it doesn't get um it doesn't get offered in in other settings i i don't take that lightly i take that very seriously in fact that um when we talk about uh, you know end of life decision making, or talk about physician aid in dying, or physician assisted suicide, right, or how people um, grapple with tremendous changes that their lives have undergone after a disabling disease or condition. Um, like to have been able to uh, experience life on both sides of those questions, I think, is a really valuable insight to have. And I, I don't think my students uh, miss that. Um, I think that they, they understand that, you know, that having the perspective of somebody who has actually lived these kinds of things is a very valuable one. And I know that um, my students gain a lot from, from these kinds of conversations colored by my own experiences. And I'm, I'm, I am very willing to talk about deeply emotional and deeply personal experiences that my family and I have undergone, like, you know, my own struggle with these kinds of medicalized understandings of disability, right? The disability is a medical failure and perhaps the life of somebody with a disability is, should not be viewed in the same light as the, the relative worth of somebody without a disability, right? Like, we see the um, the... After effects of those kinds of questions to this day, right until the uh, the days of the pandemic where uh, we're dealing with scarce resources um, in medicine in particular, in healthcare in particular, and when you have scarce resources, who gets triage care and who does not, right? Who gets access to care and who does not. And people with disabilities, even during the time of the pandemic, right? Even you know, 30 plus years after the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? People with disabilities are still viewed as less than everybody else, as their lives is not as good as everybody else. And like changing that conversation, changing the, the, the tone of that conversation is extremely important because it has practical consequences on people's lives. So these are the kinds of things that we talk about. And to, to be able to, to assess that and kind of suss it out from a very personal perspective has been a gift that I never would have imagined myself having. And um, I think that talking to future healthcare professionals offers a, a very unique and valuable lens into the lives of people with disabilities as, as important parts of society
0: That was an excerpt from my 2023 conversation with Brooke Ellison, Ph.D., disability rights activist and associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University. To listen to our full interview, scroll back in your podcast feed of choice on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, if you're listening there, or you can visit thenewstory.is slash podcast. That's where you can find us online, full catalog of all of our episodes, thenewstory.is slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo We're so happy that you're here. We hope you're enjoying and benefiting from these intellectually stimulating cerebral conversations. Uh, we also hope you find them uplifting and entertaining in their own way, too. If you're enjoying our work, please share this podcast with a friend or leave us a rating and review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You could just click through, see where it says The New Story is with Dave Urselo, scroll down to the bottom on Apple Podcasts, and give us that five-star rating to help others know that our work is truly worth listening to. And we thank you for your support. Until next time, my friend, thank you again for listening. Story on, stay well, bye for now.